Okay, so Charlie Brown's teaching us a lesson about what Christmas is all about, and instead of getting caught up in all the commercialism, and um, we have something that atheists don't have. We have faith, and we have hope, and we have life, and we have richness in music, and art, and story, and so many different things. And let's talk about the Advent wreath. Um, I'm grateful that we have an Advent wreath, but this must be an Assemblies of God Advent wreath. It must be balding, I'm not sure. But anyway, there's a little bit of greenery that is there. Um, That on the wall there looks a little bit more like what Advent wreaths used to look like. And this is what I'm used to them looking like. But Sonia is going to come and she's going to light the first candle for us. I appreciate that, Sonia, you helping me on that. And the first candle up here is the um, hope candle. Is that the, yeah, that's the one right there. If you just light that one, let me, let me get that wick up there. So there we go. I think you need to pull, the tri- pull that back and pull the trigger. There you go, that's it. Let me see. Let me see. If you just push that forward and pull the trigger, you'll get it. I'll tell you what. I will light it and you guide it. Okay? Here we go. Can we give Sonia a hand? Thank you. So let me explain the wreath here for a minute. And thank you, Sonia. Um, The first Advent started being celebrated back in the 4th century. And Christians began preparing for the birth of Christ. There wasn't an Advent wreath yet. That happened later, but we'll get to that in just a second. But as Catholics celebrate or prepare for the resurrection by observing Lent, they also, preparing for the coming of Christ, celebrated Advent. And Advent really means preparation. Preparation for the coming, or the the coming of Christ. And there's always little variations on Advent wreaths. But typically... There are four candles, three of them purple and one of them pink. The purple candles stand for royalty. Jesus was the king of kings. And the third candle is usually pink, although it's sometimes red, and that is the joy candle. Uh, When it's red, it is symbolizing the blood of Christ, so pink seems to go a little, long, little better with joy than that one. And the center candle is the Christ candle. And so in churches that celebrate, maybe it's a Christmas Eve service, or maybe it's a Christmas Day service, all four candles are lit, and then the white candle is lit as well. The second week is peace. Sometimes that second week is uh, the faith candle. The third week is joy. And the fourth week is 
love. And sometimes that is a faith candle too. So anyway, there, there are things that vary just a little bit. The reason why the greenery is chosen, and this actually goes back to the Vikings. It was pretty cold in those Nordic regions where they lived. And we're going to see that many of our Christmas celebrations are actually come from uh, foreign pagans, whether they be Romans or whether they be uh, Celts or Druids or Vikings, but Christians repurposed them. And we'll get to that in just a second. But Vikings used to bring into their homes, because these were long, dark nights, and it was cold, and they brought greenery into there. They actually brought trees in sometimes, cut them down, and brought them into their dwellings, because these evergreen trees were just like miracles to them. They didn't die in the cold and in the darkness. And it gave them hope. Well, eventually, these wreaths were made into a circle. And that represents the life of Christ and the life that he brings to us. Anybody have a guess on why the wreaths were always in a circle? Was that? Never ending. It spoke of everlasting life, eternal life that we have in Christ. And so through the season of Advent, Christians would come and light a candle one week at a time until they all were lit. Uh, if this burns too far, if I get too long-winded, I'll go ahead and blow this one out. But uh, we'll just let it burn. That'll be my, that'll be my little... Um, uh, what, what's, what do they call through the sands when they go through? My, my timer. There we go. There we go. So that's what Advent is all about. Now, something you can do is you can go out, this is the start of Advent, if you're wanting to celebrate with your grandchildren or children, it's not hard to find Advent calendars. When my kids were growing up, we always had Advent calendars, and we had five kids, so we couldn't get just one piece of candy, but we would read a little Advent story, and then somebody would open that Advent window, and we'd give each of the kids a piece of candy. And by the way, Sonia, I have a reward for you here right now. Will you come? This is your piece of candy. And I'm going to, tell, I'm going to talk about the candy canes in just a second. We're going to get that, but thank you, Sonia. What's that? So, 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 so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I'm going to need another one here for a second. But that's what the Advent wreath is, is all about. Uh, by the way, I brought a little book here. Uh, I know AJ said that she was interested in learning about the meanings of Christmas, and you might be interested too. And some of the things I'm sharing with you, this is a book I had in my library. It's, it's the stories behind the traditions of Christmas. And I'll just leave it here and right after the service. If you're interested in uh, you know, ordering a copy of that, it just says all kinds of things about things I won't have time to talk about today. But talks about the traditions behind the, the meaning of Christmas. So, uh, so here is the, the, with this hope candle, this is the passage of scripture that goes with hope. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And Christmas really symbolizes the first stage of the realization of the hope that people of faith have. And that first stage was with the first coming of Christ. This was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Zechariah. Just so many of the prophets were looking forward to the coming of Messiah. Weren't even sure who or what he would be. Many of them thought he would be an earthly king like King David. But that was the object of their hope. And so hope is this first week of Advent. And... Years ago, I was going to a rest home. It was here in Las Vegas when I was pastoring here. And I had just uh, read Dante's Inferno, the divine uh, comedy. And before you go into the gates of hell, and there's very few people that actually go into hell in Dante's Inferno, but over the gates of hell, it reads, Abandon hope, all who enter here. Now, I was walking into that rest home, and I'd been there before. And these were some of your advanced Alzheimer's patients and all. And there was the most hopeless feeling when I walked into that place for people that had lost hope. But Christ brings hope into our lives no matter what stage of life or condition of life we may be in. So this is the week of hope. Now, if we had had a bunch of kids here, we wouldn't have dismissed them to children's church yet. But let's talk about candy canes for a minute. These don't seem so spiritual, do they? And the way they first got invented wasn't really that spiritual. Now, we have a German here, and I don't know if... Americans, we call it cologne, but you Germans call it cone? Cone. There is the cathedral in Germany. When I was there, we visited there, we were told that they have been building that cathedral for 800 years and it's not finished yet. That is a long building program. The year was 1670. And they were preparing for the Christmas program that included most of the people of the city of Germany. And there were children that were part of the choir. And the priests were really kind of cranky old guys and they didn't like being uh, interrupted or disturbed. And the choir master had a dilemma. How was he going to keep these children behaved through the rehearsals and through the masses during the Christmas season. And he struck on an idea, but he thought the priests wouldn't like it because it wasn't spiritual enough. If I could just give those kids some hard candy that they could lick, suck on, and not make noise, then maybe it would work. But I've got to spiritualize this for the clergy. 
So he went to a candy maker, and hard candy was popular in those days, and he asked the candy maker if he could make a white stick of candy. That's the first part of the significance. The white candy would stand for purity. Who was Jesus? He was the sinless Son of God. But he wasn't sure if that would convince the clergy or not. And so he asked if he could heat it and bend it over so it would look like a shepherd's crook, the good shepherd that was bringing the sheep back into the fold. And the candy maker said that would be no problem. So he brought it to the priests and the priests saw the spiritual significance of it and they thought this would be a great way for the children to learn to appreciate the Christ of Christmas. And so white candy canes were made and passed out to the children and they were so quiet as the mass proceeded as they were licking their candy canes and the priests thought they are learning to appreciate the story of Jesus. So that's how white candy canes. But this one's got more to it. There's kind of a broad red stripe that goes through it. This was added later on when candy makers could paint colors onto the candy canes. What do you think that broad red stripe stood for? The blood of Jesus. And then it wasn't too long later, if you look at this candy cane, now this one here is theologically incorrect. I got this one at Albertson's last night, and I hadn't noticed this till right now. If it was theologically correct, there would be thin, uh, three thin stripes. You see it up on the wall here. And that signified the Trinity. And so the candy cane became a symbol of Christ. He was the sinless Son of God, the Good Shepherd, part of the Trinity of God. And then if you take this candy cane and turn it upside down, what letter of the alphabet is that? Who do, what does J stand for? Now, you will never look at a candy cane again without appreciating the Christian roots and message that is there. We rushed out to Albertson's last night and Cherie's helping prepare for the Christmas program at the church we attend in Las Vegas. And uh, I hadn't told her about the significance. She said, look at that one. That one's got green stripes. That would be pretty. I said, that would ruin the whole point of my message if I brought a green candy cane in there. So, would your daughter like a candy cane? I hope it'll work, but we'll try. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story of the candy canes. Let's keep rolling here. December 25th. How did Christians come to choose December 25th as Christmas Day. We know for certain that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. In fact, we don't know when Jesus was born. But there was a pagan holiday 
Saturnalia was the name of that holiday. Anybody here ever heard of Saturnalia before? Not a one of you. It, it was known by all the Romans. That was the day in which they celebrated the god Saturn in Rome. And it was centered around the winter solstice, which we, it happens on December, December 21st. But these were the darkest and coldest days of winter. And, this winter, and, and Saturnalia was a, uh, a holiday of revelry, of drunkenness, of carousing, of debauchery, of gift-giving, of all kinds of things that happened. And early Christians would get swept up into the holiday of Saturnalia because it was a cultural holiday in Rome. What can we do about this? The church was wondering. And Christianity has been doing this ever since the beginning. We can take that pagan holiday and we can repurpose it. And so they chose arbitrarily, although not completely arbitrary, because look at the significance of the wreath, the life, the eternal life. The tree that was there, I'll get to that in just a moment. Let, and the, the Pope in the 4th century declared December 25th as the day of Christ's birth. Now I've had people in my church, you might be sitting here this morning, and you don't even celebrate Christmas because you know that it was, has pagan roots. But I ask for a show of hands, there's not one of you here who even knew what Saturnalia was. It was forgotten. When the when it was repurposed and filled with Christian meaning. There's a passage of scripture. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That certainly is true in our lives, isn't it? You're not who you used to be. How many of you sitting here this morning, when you look back at who you used to be, you go, ick, I can't believe that's who I was. But your life has been renewed and repurposed. And so Saturnalia, and remember that Christianity was growing exponentially throughout the, the Roman Empire at this time. And there were more Christians than there were pagans. And Christmas Day completely replaced it. It's not the only holiday that this happened with. Last time I spoke, I was talking about the return of the gods. Remember Ishtar? Do you know what the name Ishtar morphed into? Easter. That was the pagan day of celebrating the fertility goddess. That's where Easter eggs came from. The fertility goddess that was there. Christianity repurposed it. I had never even heard of Ishtar. For a long time. But I've sure heard of Easter. And it stands for the day of the resurrection of Christ. Halloween, the same thing. Some of us sitting here, including myself, we have Celtic roots. I have some Scandinavian, I have some Viking blood in me too. Some of you do too. Uh, so I've got Druid in my DNA if I go back far enough. And Halloween was the day in which the spirits of the dead came out. 
It was a day of terror and horror until Christianity repurposed it. And it became All Saints Day, or the evening before All Saints Day, in which we celebrated the saints of God. What the point I'm trying to make is even in your life, you don't like to look back at who you used to be, but God made you a new creation. And December 25th, the whole world celebrates the birth of Christ. You go through the malls and you'll still hear Christmas carols. Last time I went to Lowe's, I looked at all the, other, all the little uh, um, Frosty the Snowman and Snoopy up there, and I'm looking for a nativity up there somewhere. And it's still there. December 25th. That's how it became Christmas Day. Let's keep going here. Nativity. This has an interesting story. Now, I'm not a Catholic. But when we had our house in Eugene, we had this wonderful yard. And some Catholic must have lived there before. And they had a yard statue of St. Francis of Assisi there. And when we sold that house and came down, I grabbed the statue of St. Francis. And St. Francis is in our yard now. He's just such a peaceful looking statue that's there. And if you know the story of St. Francis, you can appreciate it. St. Francis of Assisi. He's one of the great saints of the Christian faith. And he moved to a small town in Italy, and it was a Christian town. But Christians then, as now, and as the song we sang a little earlier today, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it's prone to leave the one I love. And he wanted to find a way to impress the magic and the mystery of the Christmas story upon the people. The year was 1223, and St. Francis actually asked permission of the Pope if he could build a live nativity in the little town where he pastored. It wasn't a complete one like you see here. It had a manger, though, but Jesus wasn't in it. It didn't have Mary and Joseph, but he did have an ox and a donkey that were there. And people came, and they were mesmerized by it. Francis was known for his love of all creation. There's a famous story, legend or fact, I don't know. But the atheists don't even have a story. There is the story of the taming of the wolf at Gupio. There was a wolf in this region. And this happened a couple of years before he built the nativity. And this wolf, there was a pack of wolves, but there was one wolf in particular that attacked the children of this town. And the people of the village were terrorized of this huge wolf that was there. And there are stories about how birds would come and land on the shoulders of Francis and how he loved all of God's creation. They asked Francis to come and go and find the wolf. And the story is that he went. And he walked out to where the wolf was. And the wolf came snarling up to Francis and Francis held up the cross 
and said, you have been an evil wolf. And that wolf cowered down and bowed down before Francis. And Francis went on and told the story of how the people of the village were terrorized. And he said to this wolf, if you will promise not to attack the children of this city, I will ask the people of the village. It's working. See, she's listening to a long, boring sermon. But has the candy cane there, it works just like it did in the cathedral in Germany. And the wolf cowered down. And Francis asked, will you promise that if these people provide food for you, you won't eat any of their children? And the wolf raised up his paw as a sign that he would. Francis went back, told the, told the people of the village, and they began setting food outside on the porch of their house. And for two years, that wolf came and would eat the food in the village. And after two years, he died of old age, and the people of the village mourned the death of the wolf that had become their friend. Francis loved animals. That's why he put animals around in the nativity scene that was there. And the story goes that on that Christmas season, and there were people singing Christmas songs, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Francis was so overwhelmed in staring at that manger that he would only... he would not say the word Jesus because he couldn't get it out of his mouth. And he referred to Jesus as the child of Bethlehem. And that became a way in which the people of this town, the story of the nativity and the story of Christmas sprung to life for them. And it is still something that, you know what? We came home Friday night we live in a little nice neighborhood there in northwest Las Vegas, and the lights are already up. And I haven't gone through our neighborhood yet. And right across the street, it's lit up with Snoopy and Frosty the Snowman and Santa and the sleighs and all that. But I haven't yet seen a nativity. I'm going out to Hobby Lobby tomorrow, and if I can find a nativity, it's going to be in Pastor Stan's front yard because there's going to be a nativity there. And if you light up your house, I think it's time for us to do that. Let's take Christmas back. I guess Vanette's on to that already herself. Got it up. Good. Good. So that's the story of the nativity and where it came from. The Christmas tree. Back to Saturnalia for a moment. The Christmas tree was repurposed as well. The early Christians began putting trees up, but they were called paradise trees. And if you look at the ornaments on this, they're like the apple that goes back to paradise. And the apple on the tree, and the, and the, on the tree of life. And there are many stories, back to the Vikings again. They brought evergreen trees in and cut them down and set them in their dwellings in the dead of winter up in the... Um, you know, in the Scandinavian countries that were there. There's a story of St. Boniface. 
He was, I believe it was in Devonshire, England. And this was in about the 7th century. And there were still those that were practicing child sacrifice among the pagans in England in those days. And St. Boniface went out and there was an oak tree that was there and there was a young boy that the Druids were getting ready to sacrifice. And Boniface interceded for them. And he told them the story of Christ that has given his life for us so that we don't have to take the lives of others. And there was near that oak tree where all the leaves were dead, there was a, a, a fir tree almost in the shape of a triangle that was there, a young one. And he used that fir tree to tell the story of God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit in much the same way. And you've probably heard this story of how St. Patrick used the three-leaf clover to tell the story of the Trinity. And so the Christmas tree became something that was part of the celebration of Christ. And I don't think you, it takes a, a brain surgeon to figure out what that star is supposed to represent on the top of the tree. That's the star of Bethlehem. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, was walking home one night, and in the, that frigid, clear night, he saw stars shining through the uh, branches of an evergreen tree. And it reminded him of the star of Bethlehem, and he went home. I wouldn't recommend this for the fire codes of today, but they took candles and set them on the branches of the evergreen trees. And so Christmas trees became a part of the celebration of Christmas. And taken from the pagan roots and ways that they did it, it was repurposed and turned to something that was filled with Christian meaning. Caroling. We don't do that as much as we used to, but still sometimes you'll walk through a mall and people will be singing Christmas carols. Do you know the first Christmas song was written in about the year 120-something? And the title of it is familiar to us today. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. I don't know what the words to it were. I don't know what the tune was. But very early on, there were songs that were sung. St. Francis had Christmas carolers. The thing that was interesting about most of the Christmas songs that came from the people, they weren't in Latin because they didn't understand what it was. But they became barroom songs that they took and they gave Christian words to them. And it was in their own language and they were festive and joyous. And so singing of Christmas songs became something very early on. That was a part of the season of Advent and celebrating the birth of Christ. Now the story is told at the house of Windsor. And I forget the year on this. But where caroling, going to houses as they did, there were Christians in the city, I don't know what the name of the town was, where the house of Windsor was. 
But they went and they were singing to the royals in, in England songs of Christmas. And the royals loved it so much that it became something in England that they began to celebrate going house to house and singing the songs of Christmas and filling with the sounds of, of the Advent season while they, were cel- while they were celebrating Christmas. One of the greatest Christmas songs, it was actually a cantata, was the Messiah by Handel. Handel said when he was writing the Hallelujah Chorus, and he was paraphrasing the Apostle Paul, he said that tune and those words came to him so quickly that he did not know whether it was in body or out of body that he received those words of the Hallelujah Chorus. And that actually saved Handel's career because he was considered to be uh, too old to be contributing anything musically. But that Messiah, Handel's Messiah, became a staple. We still hear it to this day. And he was asked to come to London and perform it before the king. It was King George II. And when they came to the Hallelujah Chorus, King George stood up. And everybody in the audience stood up. And to this day, If you're in a church service or you hear the Hallelujah Chorus, people stand because that Hallelujah Chorus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I get choked up when I think about this. It was the King of England that was standing before his king when the Hallelujah Chorus was being sung. So Christmas carols and Christmas songs. I'm having my kids over uh, one day. There'll be, I don't know how many of us, there'll be about... 14 or 15 of us, and I got our piano tuned, and my oldest son uh, plays the piano, and we're going to come. We're not going to have any gift-giving or anything. We'll have something there, along with the caroling. Wassail was a drink that they served, so we might fix some wassail, which is kind of like apple cider, I guess. But we're going to sing Christmas songs and tell Christmas stories, and Frosty the Snowman will come in there. I'm sure he will, you know, but there will be Silent Night, and there will be others as well. So that music has been a part of Christmas. Gift giving. This really came from the three wise men who came. Next Sunday I'm going to continue on seasons meanings. Only I'm going to, we're going to look more closely at scripture and the significance of like the wise men who came and the shepherds who came. But these came bearing gifts. Gold, which was the gift that was fit for a king. Frankincense, which was an, uh, an essence of um, incense is the word I'm looking for here. And in the temple worship in Israel and in many of the temple worships throughout, the, even in the Catholic Church today, frankincense, you will smell the frankincense. This is the incense of worship. And myrrh, which was the scented embalming fluid that was used for those that died. And that was all pointing to the life and the ministry of Christ. And so the gift giving, in part, came from this. Now, Santa Claus. Good old Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas, he wasn't saint in those days, but he was a child and he was of Christian parents. And very early on in his life, he fully embraced the Christian faith. They were a very wealthy family. But Nicholas was orphaned at an early age. 
But he took his whole inheritance and gave it away to the poor and to the destitute. He was such a remarkable man that at 17 he was ordained into the priesthood and shortly thereafter became archbishop. This was in what is modern day Turkey. But this he was born in the year 280. So we're pretty early when this happens. And his entire life was one of giving, of generosity, of kindness. There were so many miracles and healings that were associated with Nicholas. That he was recognized as a saint after, after his death. One of the stories, supposedly a true story. In those days, when a young woman was ready for marriage, there had to be a dowry given. And this was of some value. This was to be given to the groom. No dowry, no marriage. And there was a poor man who had three daughters. <clears throat> But he didn't, have, uh, he didn't have the means to provide an adequate dowry. Now, Nicholas always, you know, when you're generous, God brings things back to you, doesn't it? Even though he would give everything he had away, gave it away, there was always more that was coming to him. And Nicholas took bags of gold. And he put them, there are two stories. One of them is the Dutch version. And the other is the one for why we hang stockings today. Put the gold in the stockings of the oldest girl. And she had the dowry. And so she was able to marry. And he did that for each of the three daughters. Nicholas' life was one Of just giving away. He became the patron saint of about any, everything. He's the patron saint of children. He's the patron saint of orphans. There was a ship at sea that his prayers saved the sailors. He's the patron saint of sailors. There are entire nations that name Nicholas as their patron saint. And Saint Nicholas died on December 6th. And so to this day, in many parts of the world, particularly in uh, Eastern Europe, I don't know if they do this in Germany or not. Do they? St. Nicholas Day? Yeah. December 6th. And this is a day of feasting, and this is a day of gift giving. And this is the reason why you hang up, or the roots of why you hang up your stockings for the children on Christmas Eve. That's St. Nicholas That was giving these things. And so you can see how that morphed into Santa Claus. And so this is where Santa Claus came from. St. Nicholas. One last thing. A Christmas carol. That seems pretty silly. The 12 days of Christmas. When I was pastoring church on Eve, it would be kind of a, a festive service that we would have. And for part of it, uh, uh, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were there. And we would divide up the congregation into 12 different sections. And we would sing the 12 days of Christmas. And everybody had to stand up with motions for your whatever day of Christmas you were celebrating. And it was a festive kind of frivolous sort of thing. But this story really has spiritual significance. 
Nobody's sure about this, but it might go back to the time in England when the Catholic faith was outlawed. And the only faith you could practice would be that of the Church of England. And so Catholics in the city, or wherever they were, had to speak in code language. And so, the partridge in a pear tree is Jesus. He's symbolized by a partridge, which is the only bird that will die to protect her nest. Most birds, if you get near the birds in the nest, the mothers won't come back. Well, you can read, we'll just read through it here. That's kind of small print up there. Here we go. Two turtle doves of the Old and New Testaments. Three French hens are faith, hope, and love. The four calling birds are the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The five golden rings, the first five books of the Bible. For the Jews, that's the Torah. For Christians, that's the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the six... Gisa laying are the six days of creation. The seven swans of swimming are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Eight maids of milking are the eight beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in heart. Blessed are the brokenhearted. You know the beatitudes. The nine ladies dancing are the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. The ten lords a leaping are ten commandments. The eleven pipers piping are the eleven faithful disciples. Who's the disciple that didn't make the cut? Judas. And the twelve drummers drumming are the twelve articles of the Apostles' Creed. You know that. Uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. You know, so... The 12 articles, and those, those were said to be, this is tradition, that each of the apostles contributed one article to that. Now, I don't know who the 12th apostle was in that one, if there's only 11 right before that, so I don't know who the 12th one, maybe it was Matthias, he was the one that was chosen. And so this became kind of a confession of faith that they could sing outwardly at Christmas, but there was code language behind it. Now, you know, I'm finished, but I just, I just want to tell you that one of the reasons why I am a Christian is because it speaks to every area of our life. There's such a richness in the roots to it that are there. It fills out our life. No matter how educated or uneducated, how rich, how poor, whatever your ethnicity or your gender or where you come from, it doesn't matter. It's a gospel that just fills it up as far as our life is concerned. And as you celebrate Christmas, and I, I haven't touched on the poinsettia or the holly or, you know, there's just angels. There's so many other things that are a part of our Christian heritage. And I just choose to believe that whether they are believers or not, when I walk through the malls, or when I look at Santa Claus, or when I see gift giving, 
Or when I see the tree lots cut. You know, God has a way of making sure everybody celebrates the birth of His Son. There's not another holiday like it on planet Earth. And so there's so many things, you know. I encourage you, just celebrate Advent. Realize the richness in the symbolism of who we are as Christians and the heritage that we have. And just celebrate this Christmas to the fullest. And I don't like the commercialization any more than you are. You do. But just understand that the roots of all of these things have deep spiritual significance and we are part of a family of faith that for nearly 2,000 years now, it's been over 2,000 years now, that we've been celebrating the coming of the hope of this world, of the hope of the human race. And there's not anyone who has made the mark on planet Earth like Christ has. And that's our Lord and our Savior. This is our holiday. And just like those Christians in Rome were trying to take back Saturnalia and fill it with godly reasons for celebrating. Let's don't let our culture today that is moving full speed in some kind of a secularizing direction, let's don't let them rob us of the richness of what we're celebrating and the meaning that is behind it. Amen?